of a doctor of the soul. Even saying that, I want to laugh. But it's true. Um, it, it really is true. And uh, tonight, as we look at this text, um, I, we're gonna, I'm going to invite a heart examination, a, a bit of a physical. If you want to, we can do. We can start right now with just like a preliminary exam, halfway point of the semester, right? We're at halfway. Still a little halfway checkup. On a show of hands, no judgment here. How many of you are borderline falling apart? Wow, a lot more than I thought. Um, how many of you are holding it together? And how many of you are uh, thriving? You're crushing it right now. Okay, well, it's actually a little worse than I thought. Uh, okay, it's great. Well, I appreciate you all being honest. That's a good sign. Um, yeah, so this is good. This means somehow we've actually achieved the kind of ethos in our group where people can be honest. It's wonderful. Uh, anyway, in RUF, we're not just concerned with your performance. We're not just concerned about your physical health. We're concerned... This is sort of Christian lingo. We're concerned with your heart. That is, your affections, your love, your desires, your failings, your anxieties, your fears. The heart of who you are. And we're concerned about those things because Jesus is. That he's a doctor of the soul. And sort of as his representative, I am too. And tonight, it's going to be a bit of a heart exam. A stress test, if you will. Heart stress test. Luke 17, 1 through 19 is our text. Feel free to follow along as I read. And he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Hey, come at once and recline at the table. Will you not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and after you will eat and drink? Does he think the servant... Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And, he, and they, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Uh, great Father, as we gather at your word, we pray you be kind to open our minds and soften our hearts, uh, to show us as much of ourselves as we can handle, maybe just a little bit more, and uh, to show us you and your greatness and your goodness. Uh, grant thus those of us that have faith in you a deeper faith and understanding. 
And be kind, Lord, to, to grant those who, who don't yet believe a, a clearer glimpse of these things. If you're real, be kind to show them. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. A uh, former RUF staff worker named Paige Benton Brown, she basically was the first version of Callie Miller some 10 years ago, shared this story about a 31-year-old uh, woman who had just moved to Dallas, Texas. During the move, she needed some rather boring medication. And since she hadn't found a doctor yet, she called her brother, who was a physician, and asked him to call in a prescription. He reluctantly did so and said, you need to get a doctor as soon as possible. About four months later, she asked him for the same favor, and he reluctantly agreed. But then a year later, she called again. Sorry, I still don't have a doctor. And he replied, uh, no, not this time. You're going to grow up and get yourself a doctor. And so she grew up and got herself a doctor. And uh, for the first time in 10 years, she went to see a doctor. And as a new patient, they did a routine physical exam on her. And as this new patient uh, is chatting with her doctor, the doc sticks the stethoscope in the proper place and uh, immediately stops chatting and asks, what is wrong with your heart? Tell me about your heart. This 31-year-old says, what do you you mean? The doc says, the rhythm is all wrong. And says, you need to see a cardiologist right away. And uh, the woman responds, what are you talking about? I'm 31, I'm in perfect health. She said, I don't know what's going on, but you need to see someone right now. Later that day, same day, cardiologist's office, as the tech is hooking her up to the EKG, they're being chatty, and almost immediately as the readings start, the uh, technician says, what is wrong with your heart? (laughs) The doc wants to see you right away. And the doctor comes in and makes her walk on a treadmill, gives her a sleep monitor, does an ultrasound of her heart, and they find out that her sleeping heart rate is 150 beats per minute. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And her heart has no regular rhythm. The doctor says, basically, in in the follow-up meeting, you can be on medication for the rest of your life, or you can have surgery to fix this. This young woman replies, this can't be happening. I just came to the doctor to get some Claritin. (laughs) And the doc says, you don't understand. You're in a dangerous place with your heart. And the woman says, yes, but but I'm healthy otherwise, right? (laughs) And the doctor replies, you don't understand. There is no health apart from your heart. There is no health apart from your heart. She had the surgery. The same is true spiritually. As creatures that, given how God has made us, there is no ultimate health for us apart from our hearts. And tonight, Jesus is going to administer something of a, of a heart stress test to us. At the same time, he's going to show himself to be the one that heals sin-sick hearts. We're going to see that Jesus is the healer of unhealthy hearts. So, note takers, here you go. Uh, evaluating our heart health. Jesus, healer of unhealthy hearts. And then a healed heart and its habits. The first one's a bit long. last two are going to be pretty quick. So, evaluating your heart health. If, uh, as you were reading, you were noting perhaps the first, I don't know, ten verses, uh, it, would, it would have probably seemed somewhat random. 
only common theme being like, man, everything they're saying seems to be really hard and demanding. Uh, that's right. Not completely random, though. If you will, imagine this as being something like, I don't even know if this is still true or will mean anything to you, the presidential, presidential physical fitness tests you had to do in high school. A couple Snickers. Yeah, so you still do that. You had to run a mile and run like 100 or 50 and stupid V-sit got me every time. Pretty much got everything else like perfect and uh, could never get the V-sit very well. Anyway, um, this is something like that. We've got, we got five tests coming our way that are going to test the character and the health of our heart. Jesus is talking to his disciples. What he's looking at or looking for here are the deep heart characteristics of those who follow Jesus. If you're not a Christian, these are the characteristics that should describe Christians. You may be thinking, like, well, this doesn't apply to me. That may be true. Um, But this is the kind of heart health that God is after. So, number one, if you want to, you can keep a little track in your head, maybe a scale of one to five, five being Excellent, and one being uh, I fail. Zero being I barely got off the mat. So, uh, number one, in verses one through three, you protect one another. Jesus starts here with this uh, strong warning that temptations are sure to come. We live in a world where there's temptation. It's going to happen all the time, every day. But woe, that's a strong word, to the one through whom they come. Temptation's everywhere. But Jesus is saying that's no excuse for any one of you to excuse it or contribute to it or turn a blind eye to it or simply sort of encourage others to embrace it or just turn a blind eye to it when they do. Jesus is saying it's our responsibility as Christians to care for one another, to protect one another. And uh, to show that he's serious, he basically says... If you're one of those people that sort of doesn't mind ushering people in to sin, it'd be better off if you were dead. I mean, that's what he's saying. Better to take a millstone that's not like ring-sized. It's a giant stone for grinding wheat. And tie it around your neck and throw it. That's something the mafia would do, you know. Sink you in cinder blocks and throw you in the ocean. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. You'd be better off dead. Because God takes the hearts of his children very seriously. And when Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourself, I think what he's saying is, pay attention to yourself that you're the kind of person that actually cares for others. That actually cares for others. So, number one, protect others. Number two, you pursue righteousness together. You pursue holiness together. Verse 3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, uh, show of hands, who likes this? There's actually probably one or two of you that are like, oh, that's sort of like rebuking people. Um, but for the most part, nobody likes this. Uh, what we like is actually those verses Jesus says were like, you know, judge not lest you be judged, right? Uh, because w- for lots of reasons, I'll just name a couple, we do not want to be in any way responsible for the behavior or hearts of others. We don't. Uh, we fear the consequences for us. If I rebuke someone for something, uh, it's going to be awkward, it's going to be painful, they may reject me, they may get angry, there will be a social cost to me, I might lose a friend. We also fear that we may open ourselves up to the same kind of rebuke, right? Well, what about you? Well, let's not talk about me, this is about you. No, no, let's talk about you too. Uh, we, we don't want anything to do with that. We, since the beginning of the Bible... 
the first couple brothers have asked, am I my brother's keeper? Am I actually really responsible for the people around me? And the answer then was yes. And the answer now, according to Jesus, is yes. He's your brother. He actually uses that word. This is a family affair. If you're a Christian, when you trust Jesus, you are united to Him. And all that are united to Him are united together in a family. And you're called to care for each other. Protect one another. Pursue righteousness together. It's a family affair. And your faith is more than just about you and your relationship to God. It involves others. So, to put a sharp underline on the test, here you go, here's your test. The first two, do you care for other people like this? Are you protecting others? I'll give you some possibilities. In the ways that you drink and party. In the ways that you talk about others. In the ways that you're dating. Just a few things that sort of happen in college every now and then. Are you proactively caring for others around you? Underage drinkers? The person you're dating? The people you're talking about? Are you doing that? Are you caring for them? Number two, pursuing righteousness together. Do you care for anyone enough to overcome the awkwardness or the potential inconvenience or the potential cost to yourself in order to correct them for their good. In other words, let me shorten that for you. Is there anyone whose good is more important to you than your own convenience? Anyone? Feel free to give yourself some grades at this point. All right. Um, Number three, we're not done with this whole caring for others. We're called to forgive generously. Uh, this perhaps, on first impression, is the easiest one for some of us. We look at this and say, oh, I can give, forgive. Jesus says in verse three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and say, I repent, you must forgive him. This is so hard to the disciples. The disciples basically say, have mercy, give us more faith. This sounds impossible. I think for a lot of us, we hear this and we're like, "Eh, it's no big deal. And that's because we don't actually forgive people. We don't. We almost never do. What we do is say, oh, it's not that big a deal. And we sweep it under the rug. But it is a big deal. We don't forgive them. What we do instead is we let resentment grow. Right? That's not that big a deal. It is. I'm going to... I'm going to nurse this resentment, and I'm going to wait till you move, and you're no longer a part of my life. It's called cold indifference. You may call it tolerance. I actually called it, I would call it dismissive hatred. You actually don't care about the person enough to be honest with them. You would rather not forgive them. You would rather them carry that debt in your heart. Right? Do you forgive generously? Test number three. So do you actually forgive or just pretend it's no big deal while building resentment? Test number four. Anybody tired of this test yet? Um, The disciples, after hearing this call to forgiveness, say, oh my goodness, seven times a day, a personal affront. They, They actually sin against me personally. I'm called to forgive them over and over. Jesus says, yes. Increase our faith. It's impossible. And Jesus says, oh, on the subject of faith, interestingly enough, uh, like here comes another test, number four. Do you believe God can do great things? 
the disciples seem to have this impression they need more faith. And Jesus is like, you don't need more faith. You just need a little bit of faith. Do you even have a little bit of faith? Faith the size of a mustard seed can do great things. Jesus is saying, it's not the quantity of your faith that matters. It's not something you can work up or manufacture. It's the quality. And what, what determines the quality of your faith, 100%, is its object. What you're actually trusting in. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you understand what God is really like in His greatness and in His goodness, and you trust in Him just a little bit, great, amazing things will happen. Because He's great and amazing. Do we expect God to do great things? Because He's great. Or are we constantly guarding ourselves because we're skeptical? So, we're, uh, this is the fourth one now. Four of the five tests through. Maybe a little bit less like the uh, presidential physical fitness test. Maybe a little bit more like a tough mutter, right? At this point, uh, one obstacle to go. And this one might be the hardest for some of us. Verses 7 to 10. We're called to serve humbly. I'm convinced that this section is deeply offensive to a lot of us. Uh, partly because of the structure, the economic structure. Hey, if you're a servant, when you come in from your day's job and your master says, get to work, do you expect to be thanked or do you get to work? Well, you get to work. Uh, and, you know, perhaps you want to reject the master-servant, and that's fine. Okay, well, just the common everyday employee-employer nevertheless fits here. Uh, as an employee, you don't have the right to expect your employer to thank you for doing your job. You know why? Because it's your job. The difference between this and the way we often think is the difference between getting participation trophies for just showing up to a sport... Like you showed up. You deserve a trophy. Congratulations. You were great. All you did was show up. Versus, and I hate to say this because I don't like the team, the way the New England Patriots talk about what they do. What's their motto for every player? Do your job. That's their motto. Do your job. Do you know what you get if you do your job? You get to keep doing your job. That's what you get. You get to keep doing it. You're no longer fired. You, you get to stay to be one of us. And if you have that mentality, then you will work right through until they receive the glory that they may or may not deserve as the New England Patriots. But that's the mentality we're called to have. Instead of the one of entitlement that so many of us have. Which is, hey, I sort of did some of my job a little bit. Where is the thanks and gratitude? Uh, Jesus is saying, God is the master. And you owe him complete duty and gratitude. Where do you get off thinking you deserve some commendation for doing one-fiftieth of the things you were supposed to do? That's the way we often think about it. So that's test number five. Do we serve God faithfully and humbly like he deserves? Really interesting thing here if you put some of these things together. I'm convinced that in regards to our faith, we expect a great God to do almost nothing. Our faith is so often small or fleeting or misplaced that we really don't expect God to do great things. And yet we expect us, when we do like one little small thing that we're supposed to do, we expect God to be overjoyed with the little small thing we've done. To throw a ticker tape parade for us. Look at me. 
this concludes our test. How'd you do? Don't need to review it. You've had enough of that. Had enough of that? Uh, this test sort of reminds me of my workout routine. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with my workout routine. You can come to the gym and watch. It's pretty humorous. I, I, uh, I'll describe it briefly. I, I run on an elliptical, which is not really running, for like a half mile to two-thirds of a mile so I can stretch. And I only run so I can stretch. I only stretch so I can lift. And when I lift, I don't do a lot of things that I actually should do. Like, I don't really like to do legs or any part of my core. Pretty much anything below here, I just don't care about. <laughs> uh, and yet, this is the way it is. Stick with me. Um, because I generally feel fine, and I'm still doing something, I generally feel like, I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. The reality is this, though. I'm coming up on 42. And I regularly neglect the most important muscle in my body, right? It's this. 42 years old. I eat eggs and bacon every day. I eat like a 17-year-old, pretty much. It's all the metabolism. Don't have the best family genetics. I should not be neglecting the most important muscle in my body. And yet, spiritually, that's sort of what we all do. We look at the things that are important to us and say, I'm doing pretty well. Get my grades down. Socially doing all right. Feel all right. Physically not falling apart. It's okay. No, we're neglecting our hearts. And we don't know it until we get something like a heart stress test, like Jesus administers here, and you realize, there's something wrong with my heart. I am not the person I'm supposed to be. Well, where do spiritually sin-sick, heart-sick people turn? And uh, we, we see in our text, they turn to Jesus. I'm going to move through these last two points really quickly. Jesus is the healer of unhealthy hearts. You see it in verses 11 to 19. Uh, here he's the, the healer of unhealthy humans. Um, Ten lepers, meet him on the way, crying out from a distance, because you're not allowed to get close, have mercy on us. And uh, the fact that Jesus is on the way means he had an agenda, he had places to go, he's an important person, he's on his way to Jerusalem, we'll talk about that in a moment. He's met by ten lepers, literally... This is the worst, okay? It's the worst. Uh, they are the greatest possible needy people that you could find in the ancient world. You're not allowed to touch them. Touching them would ritually defile you. Um, they're, they're cut off from all community. Not only that, there's, there's ten of them. Ten of them, okay? Uh, this is the worst. And... Jesus isn't going to gain anything by healing them. Literally nothing. This is happens out in the backwoods between Galilee and Samaria, far from his ultimate destination. But still, he cares. Still he cares. He hears. He sees. He acts. We see here that Jesus cares. He cares for others. And with his great power, he simply says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, the text tells us they were cleansed. Uh, so great is Jesus' power, he literally doesn't have to do anything, it seems, in order to affect this large-scale healing. This is the greatest long-distance shot ever. Okay, like They walk away, and it's like eyes closed, no words. Like It's done. Amazing. Um, the text says they're cleansed, and that is true in both ways, physical, spiritual, and relational. Their disease was such that they were cut off from their family, they were cut off from their communities, they were cut off from the temple, 
these people lived virtually excommunicated from everyone and everything. And when Jesus cleansed them and restored them, he did it all the way through. Their physical restoration, their going to the priest, was in order to restore them completely to their family, to their communities, to their religious worship in their communities. The best analogy I can come up with, frankly, for what happens here is these ten people were for all intents and purposes dead. Dead to the world. And now they're alive again. Newly alive. They're going to show up in an hour back home like no one's seen them in 10 or 15 years. Like this has never happened. From death to life, that's how great His power is. And you may be thinking, well, well that's easy for Jesus. Like all He did was say something. I mean, maybe He didn't even say something. It's just like, how easy was that for Him? No big deal. Didn't cost Him anything. Uh, that's true in one sense. It's not true in another. little note here, very interesting, is in uh, verse 11. Jesus is on his way to where? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Not just because it's an important city, but because since halfway through this book, Jesus has made it clear to his men, his followers, that he has to go there to die. See, Jesus can fix broken people, even severely broken people, physically, with the word of his power. But human hearts, far more dangerous, require a deeper administration of medicine, a deeper cost to him. Jesus can't fix any of our broken hearts unless he goes to Jerusalem and dies. That's how bad our hearts are, worse than a leper's condition. It actually requires the Son of God to take flesh, come all the way down, live a perfect life, go to Jerusalem, and die. That's what our hearts are like. Let that stand as an indicator of just how desperate our heart situation is. That to forgive us, to cleanse us, to heal our hearts, it costs Jesus' life. At the same time, be encouraged. Jesus so cares for his people that he's willing to come all the way down and live that life and give his life for you because he wants to forgive and cleanse your hearts. It's amazing good news. So if indeed your hearts are this unhealthy, and Jesus is willing to heal them, then what? Lastly, let's look at the healed heart and its habits. It starts with recognizing your need. Uh, These lepers recognize their need. Everyone recognizes their need. So they cry out for mercy. They realize they can't fix this on their own. They call out to Jesus, who's able and willing to heal them. He's merciful and heals them. And uh, that's an important lesson for us. Maybe these guys are ahead of the curve. Uh, We're talking about doctors and hearts and healing, so we'll just stick in the medical realm, broadly speaking. Let's talk about going to the dentist. Uh, Who likes going to the dentist? It's show your hand day, one or two people. That means you probably floss every night. So, um, what's that? You get prizes when you go. That's right. So this is an old uh, Jean LaRue illustration. Some of you may remember him from some conference years ago. Most of us approach our relationship with God like we do going to the dentist. And that is, for the three days before we go to our dentist appointment, we actually brush two or three times a day, actually floss two or three times a day, rinse religiously. And then we show up 
and maybe our gums aren't bleeding every time you touch them, but they're obviously swollen. And we're trying to fool someone whose job is to look at teeth and gums for a living. They're not fooled. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to prove to the dentist and to ourselves that we don't need him. What we actually want is to be able to walk out with a clean bill of health, everything is great, and, and basically be able to say, I was a waste of time. I'm doing great. That's what we want. I think our approach to God is often very similar. If I can get a few things under control, a few sins under control, do a little proactive flossing by go to a large group at least a couple times a week or read my Bible every now and then, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll get a C++ or B with God. It'll grade on a curve. It'll be all right. And I think we're trying to prove to God and to ourselves that we don't really need Him and His radical intervention. But the Bible tells us, the Gospel tells us that God welcomes those who know, who are deeply convinced that they need some help, that they can't fix themselves. And that the ones who think they can fix themselves and get their act together will never get their act together. I think that's why, I think that's why this outsider this most unlikely of individuals, a Samaritan, is the one that gets it. He realizes there's no reason why he should have a chance. He's the least likely of all to be a recipient of God's mercy. And because he recognizes how desperate his situation is, he's the one who recognizes his need and comes back. He's the one that returns to Jesus in faith. A healed heart is one that recognizes its need and returns to Jesus in faith. And when he returns to Jesus in thanksgiving and prayer and lies prostrate, giving him thanks, what does Jesus say in verse 19? Your faith has made you well. I think this is interesting. I don't think he's just talking about the physical healing. Jesus healed them all. To some extent, they all had some kind of faith that Jesus would heal them. But something about this individual and his gratitude and his understanding of who Jesus is and his greatness brings him back to Jesus. This is the movement of faith toward Jesus in need. And I think Jesus is saying here, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed more than just your body today. You have a healed heart as a, as, a, as a consequence of your relationship to me, of your coming to me. This is the movement of faith, coming to Jesus in need. In giving thanks, he praises God, he gives thanks, he's down on his knees praising God. This is the posture of faith. This is the posture of a humble servant who recognizes how great God is and has great faith. Not because he's got a lot of it, but because of the object. This is a great God. He's done great things for me. In other words, already this guy is beginning to display the characteristics of a healthy heart that we all just failed that test. You, know, you remember that test we just failed? This guy is already passing it. How? Because he comes to Jesus, recognizes how great he is, this demonstrates great thankfulness and humility. It's not only how you get forgiven, it's how you have a healthy heart. You recognize your need. You come to Jesus in faith. You give thanks. Do you thank Him? Are you grateful? I know it's hard to be grateful all the time. You're busy, you're distracted. But if at least occasionally you don't get a good glimpse of yourself, 
and what your heart's really like, and give thanks that God is mercifully kind and loves you and forgives you and wants you and is healing you, if you at least occasionally don't give Him thanks for that, I think it's a really good chance you don't actually know what your heart's like. You don't actually know what His great mercy is like. You understand the gospel. That there's no health in you apart from your heart. Finish with a story. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge was a, uh, it's a funny word. Everyone say Muggeridge? Muggeridge. Uh, it's not everyone. But anyway, I'll take it. Thank you, you three people. Muggeridge uh, was a 20th century journalist. Can we get a Muggeridge t shirt? Uh, uh, he was a 20th century British journalist who was converted uh, to Christianity late in his life. Great writer, uh, not a good man in his first 60 years. In his memoirs, he relates a time when his wife, Kitty, had fallen very ill and was not expected to live. I'm going to read what he wrote. It's pretty moving, so if I lose it, it's not my fault. Um, Anyway, here we go. He writes, It was a cruelly anxious time from every point of view. Each day, arranging for someone to be with the children, I went and sat with her. She was fighting to live, her face pared down to her skull, her body a yellow skeleton. And while I was there, the doctor came in and said that in the night she had lost a lot of blood and desperately needed a blood transfusion. It was before the days of bottled plasma. Wouldn't I do for a donor, I asked, with a sudden access of hope. My blood count was taken, and by a procedure that seems grotesquely primitive nowadays, I was joined to her by a tube with a pump in the middle, so I could actually watch the blood being pumped out of me into her. Never in all our life together had I so completely and perfectly and joyously experienced love's fulfillment as on that moment. I think for the first time I truly understood what love meant. You get the picture? By the giving of his blood, his life, he's actually helping her stay alive. It's in that giving that he realizes what love really is. It doesn't take much of an imagination to realize this is what Jesus is like for us. That apart from him, we fail that test because our hearts are not healthy. We, we, we fail the stress test and we're unable to help ourselves. And he, by giving his very own blood, by the gift of his own life, uh, is willing to save us, to forgive us. And He does so out of great love for us. When you recognize that need, when you turn to Him, and you embrace that, when you come to Him, He forgives you. And He heals your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,